Namaskar. I'm here with Dada Maheshwar Anandaji. Namaskar, Dada. Namaskar. Tell us your story, how you got involved in your meetings with Baba, etc. When I was 21 in New Orleans, United States, I saw a sign for a free yoga class. You should understand that back then, in the West, only hippies and weirdos did yoga or meditation. This was 1974. But I was a little bit of both. So I went and I loved it. My body felt better, more energy, more flexible. I felt healthier, stronger. And I got a class on yama niyama that those seven hours of class, it blew my mind. Those principles sounded very powerful to me. So a Filipino Acharya came. His name was Dada Rudranath. And he initiated me. I went to Dharma Chakra, which was eight young people in a little apartment. I meditated twice a day, twice a day, once a day, once a day, and then I stopped. And at the end of seven days, I thought, should I go back or not? Maybe I'll give it one more try. But there was something about the Dharma Chakra. They had this photo of Baba on this all table that looked like an altar. Now you understand that in the West, the word guru is usually has a negative connotation, a business guru or somebody who wants everybody to bow down to them. And I didn't say anything, but I thought it's not right to have a man's photo up there like it's holy place but I'm not going to hurt the sentiments of the other people, obviously. Well, after about three or four weeks, after we had the meditation, somebody told a spiritual story, and then they all went in the kitchen to prepare the potluck dinner. And I didn't leave this time. And I sat in front of the photo, and I started to say, they say that you're the guru and you know everything. So I started to talk mentally to the man in the photo. And I started to tell him my hopes, my dreams. And I started to feel a wave of peace in my heart. And I thought, wow, this must not be a normal photograph. There must be something special here. I read his books. There were only a few of them in English at that time, and they were full of typographical mistakes. But they were also full of wisdom. And more and more, I felt that this is, this is what I want. So after a year and a half, on January 1st, 1976, I was sitting in a retreat, a sectorial retreat. It was my second big retreat. And my legs were aching from sitting on the floor all day. They had us sitting on the floor in all the classes too. So on January 1st at noontime, after five minutes, I couldn't meditate anymore. So I opened my eyes, I held my knees up. I'm looking around, just waiting for everybody to finish. And suddenly the thought came to me, I'm gonna be an Acharya, a whole timer. I had 
never considered that before. And at the same time that this surprising thought came to my mind, I knew with 100% certainty that I would do it. When the meditation ended, I ran out to tell my friends. You know what they all said? Oh, that's okay. Everybody goes through those phases. It'll pass. No, really, really, I'm going to volunteer it. They didn't believe me, but I knew it. I had to wait two years. Sectorial secretary, Dada Chitishwanda, asked me to be an LFT first. I took LFT training with Brother Devashish in Denver in 1976. And finally, after two years, when I was 24, I flew to India. It was scary for three reasons. It was scary because I was leaving the only country I had ever known. There was no internet back then, so it really meant saying goodbye to everybody I knew. I knew that our organization would post me in other parts of the world. It was scary because the training center at that time, this old house outside of Benares, India, Arnasi, it had no electricity, no running water. There was a well in the back and there were no toilets. It was very ecological. We fertilized the field. And it was scary because it meant I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. And I don't know what I'm going to feel like tomorrow, frankly. How do I know what I'm going to feel like in life? But I discovered there was a certain logic to the madness because many people talk about world peace. I think it's essential to spend time with people from different cultures, countries, to actually make world peace. My time in the poverty of the training center meant that I'm comfortable. I can go to any village or slum in the world. I've been there. I know that. And it was also being celibate, I realized, meant that I can work 24-7. I can go wherever I'm needed at any time. In my life, I've worked in lived in 32 different countries. I counted them all at least a month. I don't count countries I'm just, you know, transiting through or anything. At least a month or many years. I love all 32 countries. But relationships, you might have noticed, take time. And children need not only physical security, they need emotional security. I never regretted my decision. Let me tell you about my first visit with Baba, because when I went to India, 1978, January, I was determined to see Baba first in jail and then go to the training center. In jail, we had to wait for two weeks to get permission to go inside. And when we went inside, we would go two by two, and we had 20 minutes each. One brother from Australia, Guru Chan, went with me. He had seen Baba already two times previously. I told him ahead of time, there's only one thing I want to remember. I want to give namaskar for three people who at that time were blacklisted 
by the Indian government, and they could not come and see Baba. One was a Didi from Philippines. One was a LFT brother I met in London for one night in the way. And one was brother, sister from the United States. So we went into this room. And of course, there were three officers sitting on the right side of the cell with their shoes on very disrespectfully. They sat in chairs to listen to everything that was said. Prisoner who guided us, instructed us, and we did Sastang Pranam. Baba was lying on a bed on the left side. There was a little table with a pratik on it. And I saw several piles of, of newsletters and undermarked newsletters lying around the room. Baba said at that time that the Anandamarga newsletters were his food. So we did Sastang Pranam. He said, get up, get up, come close, come close. He insisted that we sit so close that he could reach his hands around the back of our heads. So for the remainder of our visit, I saw nothing except Baba's face. Names where we're from. I told him that I'm on my way to Benares Training Center to become an Acharya, and he smiled. We gave him some rock candy we brought. He kept it and gave us some other to take back to Prasad. Then he paused and I told him that I wanted to convey Namaskar for the three who were blacklisted, and I told them their names. Guru Chiran said that Sister Tapasvini from Australia was also on the CBI blacklisted, and she very much was desired to see him. When he heard this, he closed his eyes, turned away from us, and did a long namaskar in space. Then Bala pointed at the CBI officers in the cell. He said, they have created so many obstacles for my sons and daughters coming to see me. I personally need nothing. And it's not in my nature to ask for anything. But please, when you boys establish Sadhguru Samaj, proud in the world, I want that the first thing you do is do away with blacklists and visas and powers. We both laughed and promised to do so. To explain, for Padma Purusha, Boundaries, human-made national boundaries make no sense. The whole planet is given to us as cosmic inheritance for us to share. Now, he said, you boys, because there were the two of us there. We knew when Baba said, when you boys establish prout in the world, we knew that Baba was going to do it. We're only trying to be his instruments. But after his physical departure in 1990, I realized that we're also a premonition of that because he knew he would not be there to see it. I hope that I will. 
Baba said, just as a guitar makes a very sweet sound, it needs a player. So we must be like guitars, but the player must be Padma Purusha. He said, you must be the cosmic sons of a cosmic father. Then he smiled mischievously and said, but I must correct myself. It should be cosmic sons of the cosmic father. Definite article, not indefinite article. I said, we're your sons, Baba. And he smiled. He said, we should never hate ourselves. He says, let others hate you. You must never hate yourselves. And he said, we should never think that we're insignificant. He said, even an ant is insignificant. And if an ant dies pre-naturally, he said, it will disturb the equilibrium of the universe. Suddenly I had an inspiration. I knew that in the whole time at training center, I'd be given a new Sanskrit name. So I asked Baba, do you have a new name for me? He paused and said, if you like, your name shall be Priyadarshi. It means one who always looks on the bright side of things, an eternal optimist. We asked about Anandamarga schools. And Baba talked about gender segregation in the schools. He said, in primary school, both the genders can be together. It's not so important. And your students have an awakened sense of responsibility. It's fine. However, he suggested that in high school, at the age of adolescence, where the sex instinct awakens, but not get a sense of responsibility, it's better if the kids are in all girls or all boys schools. Then Baba said, someday I'll write a book about child development. Would you like that? We said, yes. Now, of course, during his lifetime, he didn't write that book. But afterwards, they put the book together, Janta Kumar, Yoga Psychology. And there's a lot of pages in that book about child development. Suddenly, I heard this voice behind me say, time. I think that sound indicating our 20 minutes was over was the worst sound I ever heard in my life. Baba said, you know, in this universe, there are three fundamental factors, time, place, and person. But of these three, time is the most naughty factor. You can do Guru Puja now. So we sang Guru Puja. I watched him. And as we were leaving, he said, make yourself strong with your sadhana, your service, and your sacrifice. So that was a very blissful meeting for me with Baba. I went to the training center right after that. I went only for three days in Benares because the police were coming every day. And so the Dada Ranmayananda asked me and another sister to go to Kathmandu where we would train. 
that Raja Raj, who's now Vichitrananda, was our trainer. And I had three months there. And I found it interesting when we went, Malati was the, in our training center, she was the geography manager. She wasn't there to become a whole timer, but Baba had said she should get topic training. She was attending all our classes. And after three months, but what was interesting to me is that when we arrived, it was more relaxed than even the geographies I had known in the United States. It wasn't very strict at all. But after three months, it was a very strict training center. And none of us had ever noticed the switch. The trainer very gently walked, oh, you could try this, you could try doing this, you can try doing this. And one by one, we did all those things, and it became a very, very strict and disciplined training center. So then it was time for my week of SPT, Special Psychic Training. I was the first one in Kathmandu to do it there. But the SPT, you know, for one week, you follow certain rules, and you go as a mendicant beggar not allowed to wear any shoes or sandals, have to wear socks, of course. I was given two pieces of coarse muslin cloth, the cheapest cotton cloth from the market, the kind they make rice sacks out of, and my lingotas too. And every day I was told I had to go a different place and all I could say was Hari Om Tatsat, which is a mantra, which basically means God is everything. I wasn't allowed to use a comb, wasn't allowed to use oil, soap, wasn't allowed to use toothbrush or toothpaste. We used a neem stick to clean ourselves with. And those are the rules. And when I walked out of the training center the first morning, I was told I have to go a different place every day. Can't go the same place. As I'm walking out of the training center, these little kids came running up around me as I'm walking on the road. And they say, hello, mister. What's your name, mister? Where are you going, mister? I smiled. And they happily ran away. But I thought... Oh, those are two very profound spiritual questions. Who am I? And where am I going? I'm going back to you. <laughs> I thought it very interesting. Well, I had a little aluminum cup. And I found that very quickly that all the shopkeepers, they all had an old coffee can at the front of their store with pennies in it, but not really pennies, five paisa, which is much less than a penny, the smallest coin in Nepal. And whenever any beggar would come, they would immediately give one coin and Indian custom dictated that you had to leave if you got something. But if you went to a lot of stores, 
you could get enough pennies to buy a meal that day. It was every day I would give all the coins back the training sent and any foodstuffs I'd been given, I would cook uh, a fire and on a clay pot, I would cook it all and eat it. Well, the third day, I went down by the river and took a bath the river and meditated afterwards. It was lovely. And then I started walking up along this path beside the river and I came to this very humble village. Two women were sitting on the grass on the bank in front of their little hut, talking. And when they see me, I don't think much. So I paused and I said, Hari Om Tat Sat. And they're looking at me. And my hair looks like a bee's nest by that point. Barefoot. White skin. Saying this mantra some kind of holy man. So they both opened their purses and they both put two coins each in my cup. Then they stood up and walked with me to the next house. And they called out their neighbor and they explained in Nawari, I don't understand any Nawari, that, and that neighbor gave a small handful of uncooked rice. And the next neighbor gave three little potatoes. And like that, every single house gave me something. And when I came to the end of the village, I gave the most profound namaskar I could, and I left. But I swear I was not the same person who entered that village. Before that, I had always wondered, what happens if I get sick? What happens if I run out of money? What happens if I get in trouble somewhere and I don't speak the language? I don't know anybody. I don't have any money. That village taught me. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about me. I just have to focus on serving humanity physically, mentally, spiritually, however I can. And humanity will take care of me. So that was profound for me. I finished three months. I did a month of training in Benares. And then when I had finished, I had to go back to Nepal. And by this time I was blacklisted. I waited a month, so it had been total six months. And now suddenly, the same day that the ticket for my first posting arrived, also the newspaper said that Sri Sri Murti would be released in three days. And I went back to my trainer and I said, this is wonderful news, but I want to see Baba again, and I can't because there's this black mark in my passport. The immigration had put a stamp and wrote cancel over it, which is a clear sign to all immigration officers in the world. This guy is blacklisted in India for some reason. So the trainer looked at my ticket and he says, your ticket says 
Hatmandu, Delhi, Europe. Why don't you get down in Delhi? I said, Nada, that's impossible. Because first of all, there's the black mark in my passport. And second of all, though they would give transit visas at that time, but the rule was you had to have been out of India at least three months. And I just recently left. So on both, for both reasons, it was technically impossible. My trainer said, no, no, your duty is to try. Don't refuse for them. It's their, it's their decision whether they're going to say yes or no. Your duty is to try. I said, okay. <laughs> so I had a little green duffel bag with my uniform and little clothes and a couple of Nandamarga books. So I got on the plane with all these tourists. We stopped at 11 o'clock at night in Delhi for 40 minutes. I decided I would ask and then, you know, I back on the plane and go on to Europe. Well, I got to the immigration and there's nobody there. I'm like the only passenger who got off. And so this immigration officer is looking at my passport. And because there's nobody there, these two other immigration officers walk over and they're watching him too, standing right beside him. And one has three stars on his shoulders. Obviously somebody important, right? And I'm babbling about, I want to see this American friend and I just need two weeks, please. And can you please give me a visa? And trying to distract them, but they're just turning the pages one by one. And then they get to the page with the black mark in it. He doesn't say anything. He turns to the page. He stamps his rubber stamp and gives me an entry visa and says, you can enter. Thank you. Thank you. And I try not to run. And I try to walk to the entrance and I get in an auto rickshaw and I said, take me to the train station. I don't know. Somehow Baba made them all blind because he wanted to see me. And so I got a train to Patna. I arrived the day after Baba had come out. But uh, it was such a happy time because Baba was with us now. It was our VSS guards who were guarding Baba. It was a beautiful time. He was giving darshan twice a day, and it was just lovely for a few days. And then I went back and went on to my posting. So after eight months, I had to fly to and my new posting, which was going to be in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia now. So... On the way, I wanted to see Baba and get my personal contact. He wouldn't give personal contact when he was just come out of jail. He was still in a wheelchair when I saw him. But after a few months, he recovered his health, and then he was giving personal contact. So I went, uh, and this time it didn't work. Even though I'd gotten a new passport, so there's no black mark, but... Calcutta, when I flew in, they saw the black mark and they deported me. 
But I had bought the ticket Europe to Bangladesh, Dhaka to Calcutta, back to Dhaka, and then on to Thailand. So when they're deporting me, they're only deporting me back to Bangladesh. Very, It's less than an hour flight. So when I got there, I uh, went to the border. Well, I found Krishna Sevananda miraculously. I only told one person that I was Ananda Margi, and he was only one of two people in the six million people of Dhaka that Krishna Sevananda had told that he's an Ananda Margi, and this guy put us together. And so I went to the border with him, and at the border, I found a way to walk into India around the immigration posts and following these abandoned railway tracks. So I came to Calcutta and I got my personal contact. It was in the Ruttin Hotel. Baba was giving a lot of pressure to buy his house, Lake Gardens, and there were delays and so he was staying in a hotel for three nights and that's where I got my personal contact it was very fast Ramananda said do you do you know how to do sastang pranam and that's my one warning to remember my guru mantra so I said yes he threw open the door pushed me inside closed the door I did sastang pranam Baba said sit close sit close and then he started to ask me questions very fast. And I'm a brahmachari, of course, in orange and white, but I want to be an Abhuta very badly. And Baba obviously started referring to that. He said, are you ready to do anything? Yes, Baba. Are you ready to take a human skull and kiss it with your lips? I said, yes, Baba. He said, are you willing, are you willing to go to a cemetery in the middle of the night with bones all around? I said, yes, Baba. He said, and could you stay there at one o'clock in the morning without thinking? I said, with your grace, Baba. And he said, very good, be cent percent human. You can go. I thought it lasted less than two minutes. Maybe it was three, but I didn't care. I was in bliss. I got what I wanted. Well, what happened after that was I went to Indonesia for two years and then I went to Philippines and I was working sometimes in Malaysia. I was in Southeast Asia. And what happened was I needed an operation. A kidney stone had developed. And because of the kidney stone, it meant that I was getting a lot of pain. And we got doctors to look at me and they said what you need is an operation they didn't have more fancy ways to take out a 
kidney stone at that time. So I got an operation. They cut me from the front to the back and spent a week in the hospital. I really needed the painkillers. And I spent another month recovering. But for me, that month or six weeks or so recovering, it was a spiritual retreat. I was, I was growing physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I felt that Baba was with me all the time. They even got me a little earth so I could hear Kirtan all the time. So after a few months, I guess it was almost a year after the operation, I visited Baba again in India. I attended reporting sessions. But in my mind, I wanted to express my gratitude for how he had taken such care of me spiritually during and after my operation. But what to say? Finally, I decided I wanted to tell Baba that I was his son. <clears throat> it's not a very sound idea, but somehow it's what I wanted to express and I thought if I could just somehow get the opportunity to say that to him, that I was the son, he would understand how grateful I was. <clears throat> so the next day in reporting, Mabex suddenly mentioned something about English. He quizzed all the workers there and said, who of you has English as your mother tongue? Most of them were from India and a few other countries. Only that a Krishna Sevananda and I were born in English-speaking countries. He was from Canada. I was from America, United States. So Baba asked us to stand to one side. And then he proceeded to ask us both several things about English. He asked me seven questions. And seven questions I didn't know the answer to. None. So, first question he said, what is the adjective for the word blood? And I said, bloody? No, 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 the Latin adjective. I don't know. He said, sanguine. Sanguinary battle is a battle with much bloodshed. He said, what's the Latin adjective for cow? I don't know, Baba. He said, vaccine. What's the Latin adjective for buffalo? I don't know, Baba. Bovine. Very good. What's the Latin adjective? Uh, what is correct? Is it between each other or between one another? Uh, I said, between each other? No, no, no. The first is correct when there's only two, each other. And one another is correct when there's more than two. Of course, but I didn't know it at that time. Then he said, which is correct, in the north, on the north, or to the north? I guessed. He says, no, no, all three are correct. In the north is correct when the object lies within the referred area. For example, Kashmir is in the north of India. 
The second is correct when the object is outside but adjacent to the area. Third is correct when the object is outside but not adjacent, such as Beijing, the capital of China, is to the north of India. On the north is correct when it's outside but adjacent to. Nepal is on the north of India. It's not inside, it's on the north. And the third, to the north, is correct when it's outside and far away. So China is, uh, Beijing is to the north of India. So it's very clear. After each question, I'm saying, I don't know. Then Baba sweetly said, you know, the attitude, I don't know. That's necessary to learn anything. A person who thinks he or she knows everything is in fact quite ignorant. A humble questioning attitude is required to learn more knowledge and gain wisdom. Baba said even Krishna, who was Tataka Brahma and knew everything, he pretended that he did not know. But as for me, Baba said, I really don't know. Then Baba pointed to us and said, you boys know so much. What does Baba know? I said, Baba, you know everything. No, 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 Baba knows nothing. Baba knows nothing. Baba asked me one more question. Actually, I did answer this correctly. He said, how do you pronounce the word that's spelled K-N-I-F-E? I said, knife, Baba. He said, wonderful. Why is the first letter K mute? Why is it silent? I don't know, Baba. Because it comes from the French word canif. So when the word entered English usage, the first letter K was maintained, but it became silent. Then Baba suddenly said to me, why do you know so much? How do you know so much? My mind went very quickly. I thought, I knew very well that I don't know anything. And you just demonstrated, Baba. But instead of saying that, I suddenly boldly answered, because I'm your son, Baba. Baba said, what, what, G.S., what did he say? What did he say? And G.S. is laughing so hard he can barely answer. And finally he says, he's your son, Baba. Baba says, very good, very good, very good. I think he's saying it to all of us. Very good that we are his sons and daughters. And that he's teaching us humility and grace. He was the ideal teacher. He both encouraged and showed displeasure that when we hadn't read or studied sufficiently. But what he did with me is first he made me feel that I'm his son. Then he gave me the desire to express this. And finally, he gave me the opportunity to tell it to Bob. Anyway. That was my experience with Baba as my English teacher. He wrote a book, Sarkar's English Grammar and Composition. 
You can find these and so many more teachings about English book, Sarkar's English Grammar and Condition. In 1985, I was working in Maharlika, the Philippines. At that time, we were three daughters, three monks, and seven Filipino brothers, volunteers, LFTs, living with us in a very old house in Paco, in the center of Manila. One night, a fire took place just a kilometer away from where we lived. We could see the horizon was glowing from the fire. It was a slum that had burned down. 50,000 people lost their homes that night. Nobody was hurt by the grace of God. But the houses all burned down, partly because the water happened to be turned off at the same time that the fire broke out. There was some speculation that the dictator's wife, Imelda Marcos, actually wanted to <coughs> move everybody out of there and build some middle-class houses there. But the people didn't want to leave, and so a fire happened to take place. Well, the boys were getting all the news minute by minute from the streets. And I'm standing in the driveway. We're looking at the glowing horizon that Argyananda at that time said to me, we should do social service. I thought quickly and I said, Dada, I'm in charge of this office here, the sectorial office, and we have a total of $8 and 10 kilos of rice, 20 pounds of rice. That's enough for us to feed us for two, maybe three days. How are we going to feed anybody like that? Dada said to me, don't argue. Just go with the flow. Okay. We called the brothers together. We gave them five of our last dollars and gave them, which would be bus fare, to go and come from Divisoria, the all-night market. This is a wholesale market where the restaurants would go to buy boxes and boxes of vegetables and fruits and things. So they all went. We left out of Chutananda there in the house. And Argyananda and I, we walked to the fireside. Everybody was in shock. They didn't know what to do. We found a convent, Catholic convent, was right across the street from the fire. All along the highway, people had piled their belongings and were sitting on their belongings. At the Catholic convent, we asked the nurse, could we distribute food in your parking lot? The parking lot was full of people now. They said, of course, please. So on the way home, 
we stopped at a little Saudi Saudi store, tiny store. They only had a candle burning that night for some reason. And with our last $3, we bought two cans of milk. They don't have much fresh milk there. And a big piece of ginger root. I said, you're not going to feed many people with that. Dada said, don't argue, just go with the flow. Got it. Mum's word. We walked back to Bako Yoga House, one o'clock in the morning. We put a big pot on the stove, put in the milk, the ginger, made some hot ginger milk, something. And we carried it back to the fireside. As soon as we got there, we found some table or something to put it on. People are lining up, bringing cups or bowls or something. Women and children. And as soon as we're starting, this stranger taps me on the shoulder and says, wait here, don't go. Thought to myself, I'm not going anywhere. I got all the milk to give away. Well, 20 minutes later, when the milk is finished, the same man comes back and he says, I was so inspired by what you guys are doing that I just bought $200 of bread rolls. Pandasol, they call them in Philippines. But I don't know how to give this away, so you do it. We said, okay. That's a lot of bread rolls, $200. This van was full of these bags. So we grabbed a bunch of bags each and we walked up in different directions down the highway, giving bread to anybody who was still awake. I remember some teenage boys said, what? No margarine or jelly? What kind of? But they were joking with me. They weren't they were, we were having a laugh together. So we finish giving it all away in a couple hours. And finally we walk back and we get back at five o'clock in the morning, just when the boys are coming back from Divisori, they have 12 full rice sacks, big, full of vegetables. Because the vendors in that all night market they had the same news that we were getting from the streets. And all the vendors gave something. So we immediately put a big pot on our, we only had two burners in the jogger team. Big pot, put rice in, <laughs> put the vegetables in. And at six o'clock in the morning, Dada Chutananda and a couple brothers walked to the fire site with this big pot and started to distribute it. And we immediately put another pot on and made another pot of rice stew, lugao they call it, Philippines. And at 6.30 in the morning, I start calling everybody, all the margies and say, please come, there's been this fire, please come and help us chop vegetables. And they came and they're have kirtan going on a little tape recorder and they're telling stories and everybody's happy chopping vegetables and cooking. And immediately then I started calling everybody else we knew. 
friends, friends of friends, some Chinese businessmen we had taught yoga to a few times. And at 7.30, the first car arrived. They popped the trunk, 50 kilos of rice sack, boom, and they drove off. Now we got a rice. 8.30, the second car comes. They pop the trunk, two 50-pound, 50-kilo sacks of rice, and a case of baked beans. <laughs> Everything went into the rice stew. We never served breakfast. We didn't serve lunch. We didn't serve dinner. From 6 in the morning until midnight, we continuously served lugao, rice stew, for three days and nights. I know, because that's all we ate for three days and nights, too. I remember. Finally, on the fourth morning, the government finally started to provide cestas basicas, basic foodstuffs, to the victims of the fire. And they had immediately started rebuilding their homes, many of them. Some had gone to live with relatives. The emergency was over now. They could cook for themselves. But what was interesting was the national newspaper at that time, the biggest one, was called the Bulletin Today. They didn't very much like Anandamarga. But two journalists had been covering the story of the fire and they reported in the middle of their story that the Anandamarga Universal Relief Team had distributed hot milk and bread to 2,000 people the first night and hot meals to 20,000 people over the next three days. All that with only $8, 10 kilos of rice, solidarity, and grace. Wow. For the Filipinos, they can hardly remember it. It happened so many times. It's normal for them. I'm from the United States. I have this rational mind, you know, which counts and figures and it was amazing for me. And it was a big lesson in what we can do together with Baba's grace. Very inspiring. The next story I'd like to share with you uh, took place in 1987. And at that time, I was in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for a year. And I gave this class to a few people about the eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga. But I felt very unhappy because the eighth limb is Samadhi. And I had never experienced any kind of samadhi. I had read the autobiography of Swami Yogananda, 
autobiography of a yogi and also Swami Rama. And they both had stories that were very similar. When their spiritual longing was so intense that they were about to commit suicide, their gurus blessed them with samadhi and their meditation was never the same again. So I decided I would try to do a long fast on lemon water. I completed my duties in Kuala Lumpur. And on the third day of my fast, I took a bus to the hills. Brother Gudakesh, a devoted Margi brother from Malaysia, he was the manager of a tea plantation. He took me to a remote forest surrounded by the tea plantation. And that forest had a little pond of pure drinking water. He had tested it himself. <laughs> and just beside it was a little cave, big enough to shelter me, you know. I had salt and a big bag of lemons. So I took the Sankalpa determination that I would not leave that place until I experienced samadhi. Well, Baba had other plans. I started feeling a pain in my sciatic nerve, deep in my right thigh, in the back of my right thigh that gradually became intense. By the third day, tears are forming due to the pain, it's unbearable. Baba created the situation where I had no choice except to go back and seek treatment. So after a terrible hike back, seven miles, I kept stopping. I finally got to Gudakesh's house. I broke fast there. The pain went slightly better. When I got down to Kuala Lumpur, I went to see a doctor. And he explained that it seemed as if I was suffering from a pinched nerve in my lower spine. He showed me then one or two exercises to stretch that part of my lower back. But then he said, didn't you say you were a yoga teacher? Yes, I did. Well, maybe you can find some postures that will help. It's true. In only three days of experimenting with all the postures in Charya Charya, I discovered that Utkata Vajrasana, which is the difficult thunder posture, it worked perfectly. It stretched my lower back and the pain vanished. Not only then, it happened at least 30 or 40 more times in my life. Whenever I'm carrying heavy bags or something, I start feeling that pain. Within a day of doing Utkata Vajrasana, the pain is gone. Well, three months later, I visited India. But I still never got what I wanted, right? So while watching Baba leaving and coming back from field walk, I mentally sent him a request. I said, Baba, please give me success in my sadhana. After one day, I thought, 
This is really stupid. Baba, I want you. That's all I want. The next day, June 3rd, 1987, I got the chance to attend Baba's seminar class on yoga psychology. In the downstairs hall of his Lake Gardens residence, only about 30 senior Abhutas were allowed to be present for this particular class. As he sat down, he said that he wanted a volunteer to come beside him for a demonstration. I thought to myself, I would love to be the one, but I won't go there unless you call me personally. So one thin daughter ran and stood beside him. Baba looked at him and said, no, he should be broad chested. So he ran back. Another daughter, very broad chested, ran and stood there. And Baba said, no, he should be born in a cold country. What are the cold countries, Baba said? Well, southern part of Chile and Argentina, Russia, the Scandinavian countries of Europe, the island of Tasmania in Australia, Canada, and the northern half of the United States. Oh, by that time, it was clear to everyone in the room that I was the only one, who, everybody else was from India. I was the only one present who qualified, so they called my name, and I very gratefully went and stood beside Baba. Baba began, in the time of Shiva, yogis and biopsychologists preferred cold climates. In those days, they did all kinds of parapsychological research. Even now, yogis run to the Himalayas for this purpose. Anandamarga sadhana is a biopsychological practice. I was in heaven, standing just beside Baba. Then, you know, he seemed to answer my internal hope for success in sadhana by saying, if in a particular life, one performs sadhana but does not attain salvation, one will have to come back again. Under such circumstances, one may or may not remember one's past life. It depends on the pituitary gland. Then in the latter part of one's present life, say at the age of 40 or later, if one's mind reaches the pineal gland, one will attain salvation. He spoke about the chakras and plexi in the body. And he took his stick and he waved it up and down in front of my chakras. As if he's demonstrating like a teacher where the chakras are located in the body. Now all the 30 avatars in that room knew perfectly well every location of every chakra. But then he asked me to sit down beside him and touch the other end of the stick that he was holding, touch it to my agra chakra and then to my chakra. I felt waves of peace. 
Then he continued speaking, and Baba said, I'm just mentally, I'm embracing Baba, not physically, but I feel like that. And Baba says, if one does not attain salvation in a particular life, in the next life, after the testes glands or the ovaries start to function, one will have to become a spiritual aspirant, leaving one's hearth and home to become successful in spiritual life. He used the very word success that I had been requesting the day before. And it's interesting because Baba said many times that any family person can reach the highest levels of, of sadhana, uh, of spiritual realization. But he was talking and I was standing beside him. For me, I did very much feel that I had to leave my hearth, an old English term for the fireplace, my hearth and home for my success in spiritual life. And then Baba ended with this phrase, a spiritual aspirant is to perform spiritual practices to satisfy Parama Purusha in the form of Parama Guru. That is why it has been rightly said, Guru Kripahi Kevala. The grace of the Guru is everything. There's, an, there, there's a word, Ahituki Kripa, which means grace without reason. What I read is from Baba's because it was published as part of the chapter biopsychology in the book Yoga Psychology. But grace without reason comes to all of us. And what we do with that grace depends on us. So Six months later, I received a letter from Calcutta that said, Dada Shwadananda, that I'm so happy to inform you that your application for Vishesh Yoga has been granted by Baba. Baba is kind enough to accord his permission for you to learn it. Come whenever you can for the same. Grace without reason. There's no reason I should have gotten it, but Baba gave it. <laughs> 